when the Jewish people were in Mitzrayim after living through 10 months, maybe slightly more, of incredible miracles, Hashem showing His divine control over every aspect of creation. Finally, they were told that it's shortly time to leave, but Hashem first wanted to give us a mitzvah, and that was a mitzvah of the Shechit of the Karban Pesach. We're told to tie the lamb to the bedpost, and then after shechting it, take the blood and put it on the lintel, on the mashkof, on the outside of the doorpost. And Rashi says in the end, The Pesach says, after doing this, do not leave. The night after you shech the carbon Pesach, put the blood on the doorpost and do not leave the house. Stay inside that night. This was going to be the night of Makas Bechorus, the firstborn of the Mitzrayim were going to be killed. Do not go outside. And Rashi explains, why did Hashem tell us not to go outside? Once the Sutton is given permission to kill, the Sutton doesn't make a distinction between a righteous person or a wicked person, and therefore stay inside. The Sutton is going to be outside, he's going to be killing all the firstborn in Mitzrayim. Stay in your house, you'll be protected. If you leave the house, there's no telling what will happen, because again, as Rashi explains, once the Sutton is given permission to kill, he doesn't distinguish between righteous or between wicked, stay inside and you'll stay alive. Now if you think about this Rashi, it should be very, very troubling. Because what this Rashi is telling us clearly is, if a Jewish person were worthy, and he was righteous, and yet he went outside, he might well have died. Now that goes against everything we know in our religion. Hashem is the Shofet, Hashem runs the world, Hashem determines exactly who's going to live, who's going to die, and what do you mean that the Sutton is given permission to kill, then he doesn't distinguish. Who's in charge here? Hashem created the world, Hashem runs the world, and Hashem has a particular system via which running the world. If you're righteous, you're righteous. If you're not, you're not. Yet Rashi is clearly telling us, even if you were at tzaddik, had you gone out in the street that night, you might well have lost your life. It seems to make no sense. It doesn't seem to be just. And more than anything, it seems to argue with everything in our religion. One of the basics of our religion is understanding Anochi Hashem Elokecha. The very first mitzvah is knowing that Hashem is the one who runs every facet of creation. Hashem is involved in everything that occurs. Everything that happens, no happenstance, no random occurrences, yet this seems to be very much in contradiction to that. So I'd like to see if we could better understand this Rashi and glean from it certain principles that will be very applicable to the issue this evening. And let me begin with the following observation. A big part of our religion is davening. We daven three times a day, we daven regularly, and I'd like to ask what I consider the obvious question about davening. The basics of our entire Amuna system are predicated on two principles. Number one, that Hashem loves me more than I love me. That as much as I want my best, as much as I want what's good for me, Hashem wants it even more. That's the very first principle and that a person has to have for bitochan, explains that principle, knowing that Hashem wants my best, Hashem cares for me, Hashem loves me more than I love me, is the first principle for bitochan. The second principle for bitochan, he says, is knowing that Hashem knows better than I what is for my best. As much as I think I need this, as much as I think this is good for me, as much as I think this is the best for me, Hashem knows even better. And these are the two principles that Bitochan rests on, number one, Hashem loves me more than I love me. Number two, Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. So with that being said, I'd like to ask the obvious question about davening. 
We daven. We ask for many things. Many, many things. Why do that? If in fact this that I'm asking for was for my best, Hashem would have given it to me. And if Hashem hasn't given it to me, obviously it's not for my best. I want this job, I want a child, I want to get married, whatever it may be. Why daven? If Hashem loves me more than I love me, and if Hashem knows better than I what's for my best, again, if Hashem <coughs> wanted to give it to me, if it was for the best, Hashem would have given it to me. If Hashem has not provided it for me, obviously it's not for my best. Why daven? Why ask for things? And to understand the answer to this question, we have to understand at least two of the systems of davening. Davening works through two very distinct mechanics or systems. Number one is what I call the worthy system. The worthy system means as follows. Before I davened, I might not have been worthy. Through the process of begging, beseeching, imploring, I change. I cut through this heavy haze of physicality. I cut through the static I recognize that Hashem is the one who runs the world. You see, we mouth many words, Hashem runs the world, Hashem's in charge, but in the thick and thin of things, when life really happens, gone is all of those beliefs. To make those beliefs real, there's nothing like desperation. When you desperately need a certain solution, whether it be a cure for a disease, whether you want a child, you want to get married, whatever it may be, and you recognize, I cannot control my destiny. I'm not in charge. And you beg, you beseech, you implore, you turn to your Creator and you say the words, Hashem, you run the world, please provide it. That process changes my reality. And that process changes the essence of me, takes things from the abstract and makes it much more concrete. And that is the first system of davening. I might not have been worthy, meaning it could be that that which I'm asking for wasn't for my best before I davened because I wasn't worthy of it. But through the process of davening, and through the process of cutting through the haze, I changed, and once I changed, now I'm worthy of what I asked for, and I might well get it. And that's what I call the first system of davening. However, if you think about it, that doesn't answer many, many of the situations for which we daven for. And I'll give you a classic example. You hear of a certain woman, Nebuch, she's unconscious, she's terribly ill, and the entire tzibur, 200 people gathered together to heal him, and they're crying, and they're t- here's the question. She's not changing. She's not even aware that you're davening. How could that work? Again, if Hashem loves her more than I could possibly imagine or envision, and Hashem knows what's for her best, leave it to Hashem. What am I interfering? Obviously, that's what's wanted. That's what's for the best. Why am I asking? Why can I change things? What am I attempting to do? And understanding the second system of davening is imperative to understanding much of the way tefillah functions, much of the way our davening functions. And to understand that, let me share with you an interesting example. If you study the world that we live in, there are vast differences in the economic output and certainly in the vast differences in wealth of various countries. There's something called the purchasing power parity, meaning a measurement that allows you to know how to measure the wealth or the uh, or the poverty of different nations. Now, uh, as a little interesting aside, to know the value of a currency, you have to have something to measure it against. For instance, a franc is worth this much, a dollar is worth this much. These people in this country earn so many of their currency. These people in this country earn so much. You need a system to measure against. So ironically, one of the measures that economists now use is the Big Mac. How much does McDonald's charge in any given area for a particular 
for a big mac that tells you the value of the currency. In any case, there are very clear understandings of the value of currencies in, in each different country and their vast differences in riches. And if you start from the very top and you go all the way bottom, you see that there's tremendous, tremendous poverty in certain countries. On the absolute bottom rung, last of the last, is Madagascar. Small island off of Africa. The average citizen there earns $440 a year. That means about a dollar and change a day. That means that's their entire yearly earnings, and that's what they're living on. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute the following. Imagine I'm looking to buy a house, and I walk into my local savings and loan, and I say to them, you know, gentlemen, I would like to uh, apply for a mortgage, and don't worry about my paying it. I'm financially very, very, very secure. I earn 20 times as much as the average person earns in Madagascar. No, 40 times. I earn 40 times as much as the average person in Madagascar. You don't have to worry about my credit. You can loan me the money. Now, not only won't they write me a mortgage, they'll probably apply for Medicaid, for HUD, for various social services for me because $18,000 a year is way, way below poverty level in our country. 40 times the earnings of one country is way, way below poverty here because there are different standards of measures, different standards of living, and things are measured by different criteria. Now, that is a very important concept to keep in mind, because Chazal tells us that when Hashem wanted to create the world, Hashem wanted to create the world with din. Din means justice. Justice means you're held accountable, you're held responsible for what you did. Now, if you think about it, din is absolutely correct, din is absolutely proper. But I want you to understand, din is very, very exacting. When Hashem created the world, Hashem created immutable laws of nature. Gases tend to expand. <clears throat> Heavy objects tend to fall. Heat tends to rise. Those are laws of nature that apply wherever they may be. When Newton was sitting under that apple tree and he got plunked in the head, you don't say gravity is cruel. It's a reality. Heavy objects tend to fall. If you leave a baby, Rahman on the top of a staircase, and the baby goes tumbling down, it's a terrible tragedy, but gravity isn't cruel, gravity is a reality. Din, justice, is a reality. That is the way Hashem should have created the world. That's what's right, that's what's proper, that's what appropriate, it's appropriate. But here's the problem. Din is so exacting and so demanding that we would not last very long. You see, the Mesut Sharm explains to us, imagine the following. A king gave me a house to live in, and he gave me all of my needs, and he provided for me, and he made specific laws for my benefit, and right in front of the king himself, I violated his laws. If I understand that Hashem fills every particle of creation, that means Hashem is right here. And Hashem gave me a Torah with very exact mitzvahs, all for my benefit, all to help me, to help me in this world and to help me in the world to come. And in front of the king himself, I violate his wishes, I go against his commandments, explains Mr. Sharm, Din demands absolute justice. How dare you? How dare you in front of the king violate his commands? And explains Mr. Sharm, if Din were in operation, number one, any transgression would immediately be paid back in punishment. Number two, the transgression would be weighed as it should be in the king's court. In front of the king, you violated his will, it's over. And the idea of tshuva would be absurd. What do you mean undo? What do you mean take away? 
you did X, it's now done. What do you mean you undo it? However, because Hashem saw if it could be that the world would not exist, you and I wouldn't make it, and therefore Hashem introduced something called Rachamim. Rachamim translates as mercy. <clears throat> mercy means there are mitigating circumstances, extenuating conditions. You have to recognize, you have to understand who he was, how much he understood, how he's doing. And Din says you're responsible. Rachamim, mercy says you have to take into account who he was, what was going on, all of the other circumstances involved. But here's the point. Both need to be in operation. You see, Din has to be there, otherwise there's no reward, there's no punishment. And more than that, Hashem is a shofet, Hashem created the world with justice. Rachamim has to be there because if there isn't mercy, we're all toast. But the balance between mercy and Din, between Din and Rachamim, is always changeable. You see, on particular days of the year, there's more Rachamim, more mercy introduced. For instance, Yom Kippur is a day of Slich Omechila. It's more accessible, it's easier for a Jew to do tshuva there, and his judgment can be done very, very differently. Why? Because in the equation between, the balance between Din and Rachamim, there's more mercy introduced. If you imagine a dimmer switch, right? You have a dimmer switch on your dining room light, so if you move the dimmer switch, the lights become stronger or less. Imagine there's a dimmer switch, if it starts at 50% Din, 50% Rachamim, on Yom Kippur the dimmer switch puts on more Rachamim and more mercy, it's maybe 60-40, maybe 70-30. Various things you do, do the opposite. The way you act towards other people is the way they act towards you. If you're very judgmental, if you're very harsh, you're very cruel, in Shemayim they judge you with exactly the standards that you do. And understanding that I can change the measure is the understanding of the second system of davening. Imagine we have that woman who unfortunately is unconscious and we gather together to pray for her. She will not change. The actions that she did will not change. But the system of judgment might well change. We beg, we beseech, we implore Hashem to introduce more mercy into the equation. And that same action, that same woman, judged under more favorable circumstances, judged with mitigating circumstances, judged with Rachamim, might have originally been judged Lamisa for death, and now might be Lachayim. And that is one of the most effective ways of davening. And when davening works it's through the second system, number one, it changes me. I become a different person. There's no question about that. But number two, the most effective element of it is the fact that I could change the judgment. The system of judgment, if I beg, I beseech, I ask Hashem for mercy, I can introduce more mercy into the system. However, that also explains to us this Rashi. You see, what Hashem was saying to the Jewish people is that Din is in full operation. This was the night where justice was being meted out. For 210 years, the Egyptians oppressed, tortured, enslaved the Jewish nation, and this was payback time. But because it was payback time, and that dimmer switch moved over, it moved over all the way, this is judgment time, Din is in full operation, very little mercy in this equation, and what Rashi is saying is, don't go out. You might be the kind of person, when Din is at 50-50, you might be clean, you might live forever. But now when Din is in full operation, and when it's fully a time of judgment, don't go betting on your greatness, you might not make it. And what this Rashi illustrates to us is that there are times of din and times of judgment, and you might normally be fine. You might normally be slated to live 120 years, but don't go taking chances under times of din, 
stay inside, stay under the protection of the dam, because in fact this is a very dangerous time, a very dangerous situation. Okay, now with that as a backdrop, I'd like to sort of begin on some level to deal with the recent events. So in Merom, just a few days ago, we as a nation went through a, a tragedy. 45 men and boys were killed, 150 injured, dozens of them critically. It is the deadliest civil disaster in the history of Israel, and it's a calamity, it's a catastrophe, and the problem is, what do we do with it? How do we process it? How do we deal with it emotionally? And what lessons do we take from it? So, before we really dig into the details, let me share with you one observation. Last Rosh Hashanah, there was a decree. And that decree was that 45 men and boys were to die, 150 were to be injured, but there are many, many different ways that that could have come about. There could have been a sudden spike in Corona. There could have been an earthquake, maybe a major train crash, or there could have been a terrorist attack. But that's not the way Hashem deemed it to be. It should be in Merom, under those circumstances, in that situation. And the reason I share that with you is because last night I spoke to a young woman who grew up in Israel and said to me she's afraid to move back to Israel. She's terrified. All the terrorists, all the it's it's terrifying. And I'd like to share with you that that is a large mistake. Why? Because terrorists are not dangerous. Now don't get me wrong, if you're in a situation of danger, you have to be very cautious and very careful but as a from Jew, I have to recognize that Hashem is the one who runs the world. Hashem determined that these people shall die, and this is the way. It could have been any other way. But don't go be afraid of the terrorists. Don't do, as we call, bite the stick. You know, when you beat the dog, oftentimes you'll beat the dog, beat the dog, and the dog learns to be afraid of the stick. And then when the master drops the stick, the dog will, as soon as the master goes away, the dog goes to bite the stick. Many times we bite the stick, we're afraid of the stick. There's a master holding the stick. And we have to remember that there's someone calling the shots, someone arranging things. And again, if it's a dangerous situation, if in fact there is danger, you have to be careful. Obviously, that's the way the Torah wants us to act. But don't be afraid of terrorists, don't be afraid of corona, and be afraid of the one who wields that weapon and understand what we're supposed to learn from it. So the question is, what are we supposed to learn from it? And how are we supposed to deal with it? So when we begin doing this sort of discussion, I think people normally cleave this into two categories. There's the klal and there's the yachid. For the klal, we understand. Whatever the message is exactly, we were given a message. And the Jewish nation were given a very clear message. We need to learn from it. But the individual who were there, the individuals who died, that's a different story. And most people I hear say things like, the klal we can understand, but why the individual? Why young people? Why innocent people? I can't understand it, it doesn't make sense. And I'd like to share with you, it's likely the exact opposite. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Lachsam Sofer, in an in introduction to Yeridea, and what he calls the Psuche Chosim, has a very interesting piece where he describes his following. He says, The Rambam wrote to his son, and my son, poor man in this low world has no manucha has no rest, no tranquility. Ashrei me, praise be he, who ends his days quickly, without tear dust and nefesh, without causing much pain, affliction to his nefesh. And the Chsam Sofa points out, it almost sounds like the Rambam saying that it's good to die young. 
It's almost like the Rambam saying, woe to the person who has to stick around for many years. How much better to die at a young age? And explains the Chsam Sofa that that's actually accurate. He explains that a person was put in this world to grow, to accomplish, to perfect himself. But there's no specific time that it takes. It doesn't take 80 years, it doesn't take 70 years. It's re- dependent on one issue, how much effort you put in, how much energy you put in. And he explains the Chsam Sofa that if you put your total complete energies into growing, into accomplishing, into following the Torah, at a very young age you'll perfect yourself and reach the level that you need to be at, and you'll be finished your job. Why is it that most people need 70 years, 80 years? He explains because most of the time we take two steps forward and one step back, and one step forward and two steps back. We spend so much time damaging ourselves. We spend so many, so much time going against the Torah's way, and that it takes us 70 years, 80 years, 90 years to clean up the mess. If a person from the time he came to some understanding and followed the Torah exactly, he would in a very short time perfect himself and be finished his job here. And then the Chassam Sofer says something even more compelling. He says you should ask a question. When you see a tzaddik who's around for a long time, when you see a tzaddik who's 70, who's 80, who's 90, you should ask the following question. What is he still doing here? And says the Chassam Sofer, make no mistake, he long ago completed his task, long ago perfected himself, but he's here for others, whether it be for his family, whether it be for his students, and whether it be for his generation, he's here to influence others, to impact others, but Ashrei me, praise be the one who completes his job quickly. And I believe this Chlam Sofer is very, very enlightening, because what he's saying to us is, don't go ask questions when you see a young person die. It could be, we don't know, we're not the judge, but it could well be he's done his job and he's finished, and he's happy and going to aid him for eternity. We're here in this prose door, in this corridor for but a few short years, and we're on a very particular mission. It feels like it's forever when we're here, but it passes in the like a fleeting thought, and every human being, every human being who has ever created left this earth. It's just a question of when, but more than a question of when, it's a question of why. And why did Hashem create us? What are we here for? We're here to grow. We're here to accomplish. But this is the gym. We're put in this gym for a few years to change the essence of me. I have a very particular task to grow to accomplish. But when I'm done my job here, my body's put in the ground and I separate. And for eternity, I enjoy what I accomplished. For eternity, I enjoy Ganeidon. But this understanding means don't go asking questions when you see a young person die. You won't know. I won't know. We're not Nevi'im. And we're certainly not able to judge. But it could very well be that that person has done his job. But why didn't he get to get married? Why didn't he get to be 90? Why didn't he get to be 80? If you look at this world as the purpose of creation, you have a very good question. If you look at this world as this is why Hashem made this us for our world here, then you have a very good question to ask. But that isn't the only question you should ask. You should ask dozens and dozens of questions that have no answer. Because as the Mishra Hashem explains, if you believe that Hashem created us for our station in this world only, and then Hashem did a terrible job. Hashem created a world that's so backwards, with pain and suffering, disease, illness, and there's no reason for it. It doesn't benefit mankind. Once you understand that this world is the gym, 
putting it to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me. I understand we'll go through many situations that aren't beneficial to me in this world, but they force me to choose, either transcend or crumble up, but choose you must. And when you understand that, you have a different perspective on life. And with that perspective, you understand that each person was given a different task, a different level of perfection to reach, and each person was given a different time span. And it could well be that that person was granted 120 years, but it could also be that he's done his job at 25 or 18 or 45. It could be, it's din, and it could be that it's a time of judgment and it was extreme judgment, And but it could also be that it was just simply an issue of he was chosen because his time was up, And but the point is that we don't know and we can't know, but don't go asking questions on the yachid. Because on the yachid, on the individual, there's never a question. You don't know. You don't know his potential. You don't know what, he was, what is expected of him. You don't know what he did. You don't know what he accomplished. You can't know. You're incapable of judging yourself, let alone anyone else. And that should never be a question. And when you see a young person die, you should never ask why. Why? Why? You should never ask why, because we'll never know. And But more than that, it could be the greatest chesed, and the greatest mercy, he reached his level of perfection, he's done, and now for eternity, he's in Gan Eden, looking down with joy, enjoying his proximity to Hashem. However, the question that we do need to deal with, and we do need to ask, is the klal, the community. Why is it that this was meted out upon us? Now, if I were a Novi, I would tell you exactly why it happened. Ko Amar Hashem, this is what Hashem said, and it was because of, I am not a prophet, um, and I can't know, and you can't know. But what we can know is that there is a message that Hashem wants us to hear. Exactly what that message is, and it could be that it's different for different people. But one thing for sure, we're supposed to know that there's a wake-up call. We're supposed to know that there's a clarion call to live your life differently. It is a strange time that we live in. In my adult life, I never remember feeling the sense of insecurity that I feel currently. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a very, I'm a pretty easygoing person. I don't get fearful. I don't have great trepidations. But if you pay attention to anything going on in the United States of America, it's very, very scary times. There's a tremendous amount of social turbulence. I was a high school Rebbe, you know, I left the classroom by now 20 years ago or so, maybe not quite, 15 years ago. I remember clearly 20, 25 years ago saying to guys, the world has lost its sense of sanity. It's fallen off the deep end. It's totally insane. What I was describing back then, 25 years ago, I can't even describe today how different it is how strange it is, how abnormal it is. Would you like to hear a bad joke? It's only a bad joke because I tell it. Anyway, a fellow's doing Badika Schametz and he finds a piece of bread. And he's about to take the bread and the bread says, No, 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 no. I identify as matzah. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying. Matzah is matzah, bread is bread. When you confuse the two, there's something wrong. But when you defend that and you claim that this is social justice, I am a social justice warrior, 
fighting for deviance, fighting for abnormality, fighting to make the entire world insane. We're not talking about immorality. We're not talking about lust and drive. We're talking about insanity. And we're talking about institutions, and we're talking about populations, and we're talking about such an upheaval of social norms, and such a... It's very difficult to not feel terror. And, of course, naturally the first thing a Jew should say is, okay, let's leave this country, let's go to Israel. And we should. Obviously every Jew belongs there. We three times a day, and we say the words, But I'm sorry to tell you that Israel is not that far behind in its abnormality. And while it's true that, Chazdei Hashem, 25% of the country is from, 75% of the country isn't. And all of the ills of Western civilization are there in full flourish. And the problem isn't Israel or America, and the problem is we are at the end of this exile. And if you like to learn one message, it's to daven Hashem to save us, because it's over. It seems to be. There's not much that can... How long can it last on very, very thin threads? On very, very thin threads, the basics of society are still existing. And I don't want to sound like a harbinger of bad, and I don't want to sound like I'm some fearmonger. <clears throat> but again, in my adult life, I've never had this sense of fear, and <clears throat> literally fear that society itself seems to be crumbling, seems to be coming apart at the seams. And I believe that there is a very real message to us. <clears throat> Meron is a minor point. I don't mean minor to us, it's a tragedy of incredible proportions. But it's minor in the scope of the very end of a very long, bitter exile. We have lived through many, many horrendous, horrific tragedies beyond descriptions. And the only thing we ask Hashem is that we should learn and listen and finally wake up, finally realize why we're here, and finally realize the purpose of creation, and Hashem should redeem us imminently, because again, it is a very, very frightening situation. I think this Rashi is eye-opening and very, very important as a life lesson. What Rashi is saying is, Hashem says, don't leave the house. Why? Because it's the night of Korban Pesach. It's a night when the Mitzvah are going to be killed. Din is in full operation. And Din and Rachamim are always in balance. When we daven, when we daven, I daven first of all because I know that I'm going to change. I know that Hashem loves me. I know that Hashem wants what's best for me but I might not be worthy for something. So I daven, I ask, I beseech, because I know that process changes me. But the second system of davening has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the system of judgment. And Hashem created the world, Hashem felt fit to create the world but din, but din is too exacting, too demanding, we wouldn't make it. And if Hashem introduced rachamim, and mercy mitigates, mercy says you have to understand the circumstances, you have to understand what he knew, what he understood, but there's always a balance between Din and Rachamim, and various things move it over. Again, there are days of the year where much more Rachamim is introduced, and there are things that you can do to introduce much more Rachamim. When you're Marachim on another person, and when you have mercy on the poor, on the sick, on people who need help, then Marachim on you and Shemayim, why? And because the system of judgment that you judge others with, they judge you. And certainly Tefillah, and certainly Davening, is a way of changing the balance, introducing more rachamim, and that woman can be unconscious. 
What she did doesn't change. She doesn't change, but the system of judgment changes. We beg, we beseech, we implore Hashem, and please introduce more Rachamim. And that is the second system of davening, and may be the more important system and more effective part of davening. What Rashi is saying is that Hashem said to the Jewish nation, Din is in operation tonight. This is payback time. 14th of Nisan by night, this is when the Bechoras are going to be killed. Why? Because for 210 years they tortured, they bled, and they enslaved your nation. Now it's payback time. Full din is operating. Don't leave your house. You might normally, under normal circumstances, you might be a tzaddik. And you might be judged favorably, and you might be live for many, many years. But when din is in full operation, they're going to judge you with a much stricter circumstance, a much, much stricter system. And under those systems, very few people would make it. And don't take a chance. Don't don't introduce it. There are times of din. Could it be that right now, as a time of din, it might be? The individuals we don't ask questions on because I understand. Each individual was given a very specific amount of years. The Ramah was a very great Jew. No one is going to say the Ramah was not a tremendous tzaddik. No one is going to say the Ramah wasn't a person who reached tremendous heights and perfected himself. And the Ramah was granted 32 years of life. He died at 32. Abayim Rava, one lived to 90, one lived to 40. Why is it certain Jews are granted before you were put into this world? They were granted a certain lifespan. But again, as the Lachsam Sofer explains in the name of the Rambam, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you finish your job quickly. If a person wakes up at a tender young age and does everything right, it won't take them that long. It doesn't have to take 70 years. It could take 10 years, it could take 15 years. And by the time a person's 18, he could be done his job here. He could have reached his level of perfection and he could be finished. And ashray him, praise be him. Again, says Zachsam Sofer, to the extent that when you see a tzaddik who's around in his 80s, you should ask a question, what's he still doing here? And the answer is, it's not for him. It's for others. Because it doesn't take that long. And the reason it takes most of us so long is because, again, we spend so much time spinning our wheels, so much time doing the wrong thing that it takes an awful long time to correct what we did wrong and then actually reach what we're supposed to accomplish here. But this understanding means that when I look at another individual, I don't have a clue. Number one, I don't know. I don't have a clue to what his original lifespan was. Maybe it was 18, maybe it was 120, I don't know. More than that, I don't know who he is. He might have reached his level of perfection, and I don't know, I'm certainly not the judge. But don't go asking questions on the individuals. A, you are not capable of judging. And B, your system of judgment is wrong. And C, you have to remember that this world is the prosdor. This is the passageway. This is the corridor. Your station in this world doesn't determine who you are. If you believe that your station in this world is the end-all and be-all, you will not understand tremendous, tremendous things in life. The vast inequalities, the vast differences of people. Some people are so talented, some people aren't. Some people are brilliant, some people aren't. You won't understand anything under the sun. Once you understand that this is the gym, we'll put it for a few short years to grow and accomplish. But who I am for eternity forever is based on one thing. How much of me did I become? How much of my potential did I actualize? 80%, 60%, 40%. And when you see an individual who leaves this earth at 40, 45, at 20, whatever the age may be, it might well be a number of things, but I'll never know. A, I'm not the judge, I can't judge. And B, it's not necessarily so bad. If he completed his task, it might be the best thing in the world. But more than anything, 
I don't have the kalim, I don't have the ability to judge, I don't have a knowledge. When we do get a klop, when we do get a patch as a tzibur, as a klal, that's where we have to ask the questions, and we have to introspect exactly what does it mean. It may mean different things to different people, but one thing I know, it is a wake-up call, it's a call for us to understand why we're here, a call to grow, and it's something that we have to think about, something we have to dwell on, and something that we have to take to heart. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions. Um, uh, is there some technical difficulty? I just see a question. I hope uh, I hope you're able to hear me and see me um, after that whole routine. But um, do me a favor, type in if you can't, if the audio or the video was bad, please let me know. Well, you should let me know before. But, um, all right, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, all working, okay. It was on my end, okay. Um, okay, in any case, if you have questions, please feel free uh, to raise your hands. I would like to call on people. We do have a number of email people emailed in a number of questions on this topic, and I do want to get to chance uh, to, to get to some of them. But let's start with Binyam uh, and Pesach. Let's uh, let's hear. Go ahead. Hi. Hey, there was a, apparently there was a man in his forties, and I think it was Texas a couple years ago, who sued the government, he said he felt like he was 65, so he felt he should be able to collect Social Security. Because <laughs> he identified, identified, identified himself as a 65-year-old. I hear, I hear. He was, obviously, he was obviously trying to prove a point, but, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's where we're holding. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess a question comes to mind is, you said people are young, the, the concept of nachas from children and grandchildren it doesn't seem to just be a facade for people alive. Even in the Shamas in the world to come, we talk about the concept of a connection to ancestors, etc. Right. So what about the missing out on that? If someone <clears throat> they're not even be able to have descendants, how does that okay. to this picture? So bra mezake is a concept that a son <clears throat> gives schusim to the father, meaning the father is responsible for bringing this child into this world, and if anything the child accomplishes is on some level credited to the father. And in that sense, having kids who go on the right path is a great, great thing because you get dividends. Whatever their accomplishments are in this world, on some level, is credited back to you. It's not so the, the main. Who was nifter at eighteen? Who never had kids? Where does how does that fit in? Is that not a something missing from their overall? I'm just asking. Yeah, I'm trying. This, this yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, but I'm going to try to answer. <laughs> I am. I really. I gotta, so, so understanding this concept that it, that it's a, a tremendous bracha having children going in the right way, because again, it's dividends and it's, and it's beneficial. It's not the main system, meaning to say, the main thing that you're judged on in the world to come, and the main thing that determines your position, is what you did with your strengths, with your talents. There are other things that you can do additionally to that, that add credits, and it could be that some people are zolka to have many, many kids. There's some people are zolka to have dozens of kids. Some people are zolka to have not so many kids. Avram Avinu had uh, one main child, he had a few others, but he didn't have that many. Um, Yitzhak, uh, the same. Yitzhak had one real, well, he had two children, but one. Um, and some people don't have any children. My Rebbe, the Rashiva Zatzal, wasn't Zohar to have any children. However, I'd like to share with you, I'm speaking to you now for one reason, because my Rebbe taught me, taught me how to learn a Rashi. And my Rebbe taught me Musa. My Rebbe taught me how to, so if you want to talk about Schusim, the Rashiva Zatzal had no children, no descendants, but he has many, many, many things coming back to him on a regular basis because there are thousands of Talmidim today around the world teaching Torah who were taught by him and giving over the Masorah that he... So 
There are many ways that you could get schusim in the world to come, many ways that you can. One way, again, is children, if they go in the right way, but it's only one of many. And again, a person has different opportunities in different circumstances, and the answer is that Hashem is fair, and Hashem allows each person to find their opportunity. So someone who was nifted 18 without, without having children or some medium and other stuff, that was his... You know, it's very, you know, you, know you, you have to remember, we all influence other people. We're all mashpiyim, we all affect other people. It could be a roommate, it could be a friend, it could be in, in, for the good and for the bad. You have no idea how many times the words you say can make a tremendous difference in a person's life. A person might have been ready to give up and you give him one chizik speech and like, yeah, let's go. But I'm not a Rebbe, I'm not just a regular... It doesn't matter. If you were the catalyst, if you're the reason why he changed, he grew, that's credited to you. So you're right, he doesn't have a position, he doesn't have a title rabbi. That doesn't mean he's not a tremendous influencer. You see, in social media, you get a, you become an influencer based on how many tags are on your name. And, but in the real world, you're an influencer based on how many people you influence. But influence means how much you affect them, how much you change them. And there are many people who are tremendous, tremendous influences even though they don't have a title, even though they don't, have, they don't have a position, and even if they're young. So, again, it's very hard to judge. Trust Hashem to know what He's doing, and trust Hashem to be fair. And again, you're right. If a person dies before they have children, that sort of that vein of dividends doesn't come back to them, but they may have had many other opportunities equal or better to gain that same sort of advancement. Is that something right. we mourn about, though? Is that something we mourn about, the fact that, they, that, they, that they're nifter? I mean... We shouldn't be upset at all the fact that someone was after an age before they had children. Or okay, is that not follow-up question. Um, <laughs> okay, so when I go to a Levaya, when I go to a Shiva house, I mourn the fact that this person is not in my world now. The mourner, the person lost a son. Now, on the one hand, you know, I have to be honest with you. On one level, the Irish got it right. I've never been to an Irish wake, but I hear it's a gone fine party. They believe he's in Gan Eden, and they party. On one level, they got it right, because it's true. For the Neshama, it's great. But for us who are left here, I'm bereft. I'm, I'm, I'm mourning. He's not with me. So there's a personal attachment, a personal connection. For that, we mourn. For that, But I understand that person is in a much better state, in a much better position, and therefore, on that level, I'm happy for them. Again, I personally feel the mourning, but for them, I'm much aware that they're in a much better place, assuming that they accomplished their mission, their purpose in creation. All right? Okay, Shkayach, thank you. Okay. Uh, let me just end that talking. One second. Okay, let's call on over here. Okay, anyone with questions, please feel free to type them in. Uh, people are fine. Okay. Here's an interesting question someone typed in. Why do we wish people to live to 120 years? Okay, so that expression, I may have shown 120 years, where, the, where it comes from is from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu lived 120 years, and what we really mean is may you have a full lifespan, whatever your lifespan was supposed to be. Now, I assume you were given a full lifespan, you know, up until Moshe Rabbeinu, up until 120. What was your lifespan that was set before you were created, before you put into this world? I don't know. It might have been 120, it might have been 80, it might have been 70, might have been, I, I don't have a clue. But as a bracha, we say you should be well and healthy until 120, meaning all of your days you should live out. There are some people who don't live out all of their days. You know, if Hashem sees a person's heading this way, there are times when a person will take a person early. Not because it's to their benefit, but the opposite, because they were headed in the wrong direction. Or if a person is chayim misa, whatever the reason is, 
Um, so we give a, you know, when we give that bracha, we mean you should live out the full duration of your life. I guess if we were more, you know, exacting, we'd say live out the full duration of your life, but that doesn't sound very, you know, <laughs> it wouldn't make you very popular. So we say, until 120, which really means, again, your full, your full lifespan. Okay, um... Okay, um, Okay. let's take a question. Well, I'm going to try to read these while we take a question. Josh, how you doing? Uh, good, how are you? Good, good. First of all, what page are you up to? What, what page are we on? 45? All right. Page 45. Now, folks, I want you to know, Josh is reading the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. Be Ian with tremendous introspection and analyzation, and he's trying to incorporate it into his life. Great job. Most people read that book like a novel, you know. But okay, good. I'm sorry, Jen. We, uh, we have to read Two Worlds, One Chance. We have to read, you know, Start Stop Stop Surviving. Stop Surviving and Start Living. We have so many things we have to read. You know? Gotcha. Okay, what's on your mind, Josh? Sorry about that. I yeah. need to eliminate the feedback. Oh. Thank you so much for the schmooze tonight. It is incredibly powerful. I mean, I just, I must say that right now. Thank you so much. It was amazing. It is amazing. And uh, my question is, is that, uh, you know, like for the beginning of time um, in creation in Bereshit, when we follow the stories of Adam and, and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and, and everybody, and they're, and they're living 700, 800 years. I mean, they're living hundreds and hundreds of years old. At mm-hmm. least that's what, at least that's how I understood it. So, how, why do they live for such a long time if it's just about completing the mission? I was just curious. Okay. Okay, good. Excellent question. Okay. So, the Derech Hashem explains that man in our current state is very different than the original plan. And the original plan was to put Adam in Gan Eden and let him be in a state where he's able to reach his utter level of perfection, and in that state, similar to ours, but very different than our state now, live for eternity. When Adam sinned, he changed the creation, changed the nature of the world. At a future point, we'll discuss a little bit more of that point. And from then on in, things began heading downhill, meaning when Adam was thrown out of Gan Eden, the lifespan was supposed to be a thousand years. Now, a thousand years meant it was still similar to... see. Adam, before the sin, was able to perfect himself to a much greater level than we can now. Um, one of the greatest frustrations that I have is that I've been at this game for a while now. When I started out in a young yeshiva boy, let's say I was 19, and I would learn most of let's go, I'm going to work on and I gold, I had goals and dreams. I'm going to become humble, and I'm going to work on my anger, and I'm going to dominate with tremendous understanding. I, pl- I had great plans to work on everything and reach great levels of perfection. I'm a little bit into this game, uh, and I haven't gotten that far. And one of the realizations, at a certain point, you got to say, like, w- w- why not? And there's one saving grace. The Derech Hashem explains one thing that saved me from jumping off the roof. And I'm only being facetious, but, but in a certain sense. He explains that in the current state that you're in, you cannot change. Why? Because this body is heavy, the body blocks you. Let's take a given area. I want to work on anger. I'll work on it. And I can reach some levels. I can change. But it's such a slow, cumbersome, difficult process that to really, really work on it takes decades, decades to really work on it. But that's one area. 
I also want to work on humility. I want to work on patience. I want to work on my kind. You will not be able to reach perfection in all areas. But, here's the point. The reason why you're not able to is because your body is preventing you. Your body is stopping you. But the Derech Hashem explains that when you do this work, what you're doing is you're creating almost a shadow image within you. Meaning, let's assume I'm working on anger. And so really, I work and I try to control myself. And if it weren't for the body blocking me, I would have changed dramatically. And it would have been much, much, much more difficult to get angry. I would have, my anger would have become much smaller. But the reason I still have the same temper, because the body prevents me, but that shadow image of me becomes greater. So as I work on things here, whatever my body stops me from really accomplishing, whatever my current condition blocks me from, it's, that shadow image becomes that which it's supposed to be. Then when my body's put in the ground, it's, I'm not the size I am now, but I'm, I whoosh, like I fill out that entire, that entire shadow man. I now become that great person because I should have been that, but my body stopped me from doing it. Do I know what I'm talking about, Josh? I, I, I know I think it. So. It's almost <laughs> like it, I think I, I'm trying to grasp it. It's like um, like working on it a little bit can mean that when the when the shadow man comes out, it's like multiplied by like a million or something. Right, like exactly. Me, how I understand it? Okay. Right. So now Adam Harishan, Adam and before the sin was unlike us. He could literally he was malleable, he could change himself. Meaning if he decided there's a tad too much arrogance within him, he could change it. He could you know meaning he was at a totally different spiritual level where his body didn't block him, it didn't, he wasn't occluded, he wasn't darkened, he was able to literally change himself and a level of perfection that he was supposed to reach would have taken a while because his level of perfection could have been far, far greater beyond our scope of understanding even. Now, once he introduced into the world the the darkness and the sin, what it did, it changed the world, and now growth becomes much more incremental, much slower. And again, a lot of it, it we, w- we won't be able to accomplish. But again, we put in this investment, and when I leave this earth, I will wish reach this great level of perfection. Now, in answer to your question, what happened was like this. Adam was supposed to live forever, and he sinned. Now the lifespan was a thousand years. At that point, again, the generation started sinning, started doing wrong, and they started, again, damaging the essence Eventually, by the, after the mobble, you know, the years started getting shorter and shorter. After the mobble, Hashem said 120 years, that's the limit, because beyond that, in his man's level of perfection was limited. And the level of actual perfection he could reach here really wouldn't take him that long. So even if he blows it, even if he messes up, and he spins his wheel for a while, by 120, he should be able to make it. But again, that's because the real perfection isn't here. You're growing, you're doing the motions, you're going through the actions, but you're creating that that shadow man, and when you leave this earth, that's what you're going to be. So that long-winded answer was um, was about twenty shurim in the um, in the series that I did. Um, there's a series I don't, I don't you know it's not even on the site. I have to put it on the site. But there's a, a series that I did um, called the Musavad. The Musavad. I went through the first four prokham of Sul Sharm. It's about twenty shurim. Um, I don't think it's on the site. We did it as a as a gift for uh, a, a fundraiser recently. And it'll be on the site soon. If you don't have it, let me know. Send me an email. I'll try to I'll get your copy of it. But I went through these these points in great detail because I, I really am not doing it justice in the short time. But I I hope that answered the question a little bit. Did it? Yeah, that was that was amazing because I was just thinking as you were saying that, which I would love to have that uh, that series, by the way. But like if uh, like if 
a person now today could live 800 years or 700 years and he spends 100 years working on his anger and then 100 years working on his jealousy and then 100 years working on his kindness it's like who who is what does that shadow look like when it leaves the body it's like huge it's right like, it's it, like it's like epic you know i don't know right right but you wouldn't I think the point is it doesn't take that long because you're not you're not really going to perfect. You're only going to create the shadow man. And again, that you can do in the lifespan you're given here to reach that level of perfection. All right, and send me an email if you want me to give you send you that uh, com. Just send me an email. I'll get you uh, a link to that. All right, Josh, nice Thank talking you. to you. Okay, good, good. Okay, Thank I you. want to take a question that was um, <clears throat> typed in, Larry. Um, it seems too easy to rationalize the tragedy of a teenager dying in such a way, especially to a mother or father. And by saying it was his time to go or he accomplished a mission. And why not attribute it to the fact that man has free will and now due to the decision to congregate with 100,000 people in a small space on a mountain with limited safety precautions in place, it is why it happened. Okay, so Larry, Larry let me say the following. You are 100% accurate. It was reckless, it was irresponsible, and it was tremendously mismanaged. I'm not to be critical because I don't, I don't say I would have done a better job. But there's no question that the crowd control was improper, and there's no question that at some level someone is responsible for that event. But there are always two different cheshbonos you have to have in mind. And when a tragedy like that happens, someone who is responsible on this physical, in the physical terms of who did it, why they did it, and let's say it was a city planner, or it was the mayor, or the go- whatever, whatever division should have been responsible, they are responsible, and they should have done it, they did a terrible job, and they're on whatever level, they're held accountable for that tragedy. No question about it. And at the same time that I have to know that, I also have to know that Hashem runs the world, and Hashem decided these people should be there. By the way, how many women died in Marom? How many women were injured? And the answer is none. Why? I don't know why, but Hashem decided this crowd, this people, this person, at this time should be it. And so you're right. If a person was reckless, and a person was irresponsible, they're considered a murderer. And they're held 100% accountable. And at the same time that's true, I have to know that that person's time was up. Now, for the record, I would not say any of this to the parent of that teenager. Because it is not the time to be a philosopher on someone else's troubles. If you go to a shiva house, there's one thing, you share their pain. You You don't have... I would never say this to a parent because... And I've been asked, by the way, I've been at shiva houses and people ask me, philosophical questions, it's not the place. That's in the base medrash, that's in the shir, we'll talk about it. It doesn't belong in a time of mourning because it's not a time for philosophy. And the job of people going to a shiva house is to share their pain, to be with them. So I think there are three separate points here. Number one, if a person is reckless and irresponsible, they are held accountable for what they did. And you're right, on some level someone blew it, some agency, some, somewhere there was a, a major foul up. And again, if you read the and reports, there were reports earlier that this kind of thing is waiting to happen, and reporters said it's just, it's a tragedy waiting, and on some level, somebody is responsible, something went wrong, and they're, they're greatly held accountable for that. At the same time, I have to know that Hashem orchestrated exactly these people should be there, exactly this one should die, his time is up, and his time, etc. So both are both are correct, both are true. Um, okay, so let's, um, let's see, if any... Uh, one last thing. Avram had his hand up for a long time. Avram, go ahead. Good evening. Hi. Um, interesting, interesting question. What is the 
Uh, one interesting question, or two interesting questions. One is, um, Ray was mentioning about him and Shreem, and then I'm not going out, but it didn't. But on my side, then why did more of Shreem die? We only know the Bukharim died. I'm assuming there's more wicked people than just the Bukharim in the Tzrayim. <laughs> that's a great kasha. Avram, that's an excellent question. <laughs> that's an excellent question. Um, now, here's... I love the question. I love. I didn't think. I've never thought about it. It's a great question. I think the answer is it doesn't mean everybody in the Jewish nation would die, and it doesn't mean every mitzvah. There is this is a time of judgment, and because it's a time of judgment, it could be that you will, you as a Jewish person, might be judged more strictly. You might not be worthy of seeing Kriyas Shamsuf. You might not be worthy of of going to receive the Torah, and therefore you're going to be judged more strictly than even a mitzvah. Why? Because more is expected of you, you're held to greater standards, and it could be that you're going to be judged in a way much more strictly than anyone else, and therefore don't take any chances, don't put yourself in that trouble. So um, I love the question. I think the question may be a lot better than the answer, but I, I think that's what what comes to mind. Um, all right, I would love to take more questions, but I think our time is up. So I just want to mention again, to, for more on this topic, please go to the schmooze.com. There are many shmuzim that deal with this. Number 24, understanding life settings. Uh, the number that deal with suffering and understanding this. Um, you can get the shmuz. It's either the shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or the shmuz podcast, uh, or the shmuz app. Also, if you'd like a copy of this book, Stop Surviving, Start Living. This really, I, I wrote this book to really deal with these issues. A, why does Hashem create us, what life's about, but especially understanding suffering, understanding pleasure, understanding much of life. If you go to Amazon, it's the easiest place to get it. If you go to Amazon, it's again, it's called Stop Surviving and Start Living, and you can pick up a copy there. I wish you much. Have a good Shabbos. Thank you.